Greetings and salutations, a new quarter is here, and that means that we leave behind the treacherous terrain of Revelation in order to immerse ourselves in the effortless doxology that we find in the letter to the Ephesians. We're going to have a conversation, and we're going to just start by introducing uh, the epistle, giving you some overview of what some of the main themes are that you have throughout uh, these six chapters. And then we're going to do something special as we close our time together. But before we do, we ought to invite God to be with us as we open his word. We're going to be jumping in and around the whole uh, letter. So if you have a Bible, we'd invite you to open your Bible to the book of Ephesians as we pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for being merciful and wonderful. And we pray that you who have called us, that you who have anointed us, that you who have inspired us, that you continue to move through us. We pray in the name of Christ, the cosmic Christ. Amen. Joey, we're new, new quarter. Are you excited? I am excited. I'm a little bit sad to be leaving the book of Revelation behind, but that's not going to be um, uh, too long. It's not going to be too long until we, as a community of faith here at Loma Linda, dive back into the book of Revelation for our camp meeting series, which you have a big part of. As we well. have a whole series of things coming out. It's a slew of things. We've got Friday nights. Um, which are going to be done in conjunction with HMS School, uh, HMS Richard School of Divinity and our own Loma Linda University School of Religion. We have several of their distinguished faculty to come and give us different perspectives on the book of Revelation. And then Sabbaths, we have Randy preaching a series on Revelation, and we have uh, John Pauline uh, doing some conversations in the evening on Revelation. And then we've got our usual music and our socials and our events for camp meeting. So we're excited. We're excited. Uh, if you've been watching our broadcast today, you are starting to see some of those de details trickle out as part of the announcements. Joey will be in Ephesians while everyone else is in Revelations because we were in Revelation uh, just this past quarter. Yeah, and it's a supersized camp meeting, which means we start a little bit early. We're going to start with the last week of July and go all the way into the second weekend of September, trying to fit in as much revelation as we can in that time span. So I'm very excited. That is seven weeks, seven whole weeks, beginning, as you said, the last weekend of July and ending August 8th and 9th, Friday, Saturday, seven weeks of Revelation, 13 weeks of Ephesians. We've got a whole bunch of Bible coming your way in the next couple months. John McVeigh, professor and president of Walla Walla University, conducted and wrote the lesson for this quarter. You went to PUC, I went to La Sierra, but we, uh, I found his exposition, at least his first exposition on Ephesians, really, really enlightening with uh, some of the main themes that he sees emerging throughout the letter. Yeah, um, 
appreciate um, Dr. McVeigh so much. He actually was at PUC as the chair of the religion department during my freshman year mm. PUC. I actually took a class on revelation from John McVeigh. Really? Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was great. And it's, I was excited to see that he's the one who wrote on the book of Ephesians as a New Testament scholar. Um, just very excited to see what he has to say. Mm. So, Joey, the primary text uh, that Dr. McVeigh uses for kind of grounding us is this idea that Paul uses a lot um, throughout uh, the corpus that is known as Pauline writings, whether it's books written by Paul or, in some cases, books influenced by Paul, um, is this word that keeps popping up, this idea of mysterium mm -hmm. or mystery. And... That idea is front and center in the verses that he uses uh, mm. to kind of ground the lesson, which is uh, the chap first chapter, verses 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, under Christ. Mm. One of the uh, scholars, uh, New Testament scholars that I was kind of conversing with throughout this week calls Ephesians the letter to the cosmic Christ. Mm. Um, and she does so because it seems like throughout uh, the epistle to the Ephesians, the primary point that keeps popping up is this both the liturgical and the doxological or the worship quality mm -hmm. of this idea of this confession uh, that you make uh, in Christ, even as the church is faced with uh, forces that are, that are powerful and mighty, the author seems to try and remind us of this grave mystery that is everything is in the service of uh, of Christ and ev everything then is united under Christ. Yeah, that's and and John describes that in the lesson how everything is so centralized on Christ and not just on Christ but like you said the cosmic Christ the span of the book of Ephesians mm -hmm. is not just limited to one congregation in one city mm -hmm. it it expands Christ's work from from the beginning of time all the way up to this point and into the future and so it is this expansive view a uh, really majestic view t driven actually purpose to try to drive the people who are reading this into a worship of Christ, inspiring that worship within them. And I, I love, love how you describe that. That's beautifully stated. So if Joey, then everything is to try and tease our imagination to start thinking about Jesus then it seems like the author has to start trying to recast our identity or the things that we think identify mm -hmm. us yeah. under a new rubric. Um, so these old divisions, uh, both be they ethnic, uh, be they religious, be they ideological, start have to start giving way. Mm -hmm in light of this idea of unity, and I find it fascinating, we're going to talk about this further on in the quarter, that Ephesians uses this Roman idea of the household codes, mm. but it does so with a twist. Yeah. And the twist is an attempt, I think, to recast 
these relationships and these identities under the subservience of something that is greater. Yeah. Identity is a big theme in the book of Ephesians, right? Um, Paul is trying to get the 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 people of, of Ephesus to understand that or remind them of the new identity that they entered into when they accepted Christ and started to follow him. At once that happened, they became, and the metaphors that, you know, he uses that you are part of the temple, your materials of the temple, you are uh, part of the family of God, uh, part of the body of Christ. All of these metaphors come into play that you see in his other writings as well, but are present here in the book of Ephesians to show that something dramatic changed when you started to follow Christ. Mm. And because something dramatic changed, that means that the way that you live your life and the way that you see yourself should also change. And that feeds into the last chapters of, of the book of Ephesians. Yeah, that's really well stated. And I think that speaks a little bit to maybe the different composition that you have. Uh, I think the lesson does a fantastic job in kind of dividing and parsing out the sections of the epistle. But I think overall, there are some nuances and some differences between this particular epistle and maybe some of the other epistles of the New Testament in the sense that it seems much more Catholic. Uh, and by Catholic, I mean uh, epistles like First and Second Peter or James or Jude. It seems that it's more generalized. Mm -hmm. We'll use a Catholic in that in like that universal. Yeah generalized and universal, as opposed to Paul attempting to be pastoral and deal with some specific uh, uh, issues that are happening in the congregation. Yeah, yeah. that, And you you definitely see that. That's, there, are, there are hints that there are things that he's addressing in that he has certain things in mind that he's addressing, but really there is a sense that this could very much be written to any congregation at any time has that universal feel to it. Like, because he's going into these basic themes of Christianity, which are, you know, the salvation of Christ, the transformation that happens because of that, and, and what God has called his church to do at all times, mm -hmm. which is to unite the world to Christ, right? This whole unification, uniting together so that we can unite others to Christ. That theme, I'm excited to get into that part of it, like you said, especially when it comes to um, the, 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 the breaking down of the barriers mm. that Paul talks about between the Jews and the Gentiles and how that uniting of these two of these groups actually serves to unite the world to Christ. So that's mm. that's going to be exciting. That's, to, that, and that's, explore. I think, a beautiful, beautiful imagery that continues to be every bit as relevant today as it might have been, you know, 2000 years ago. Another thing that I think speaks to kind of this universal appeal that this particular work has is in the introduction. So those of us who've read Paul or uh, even skimmed through some of some of the epistles think about Corinthians or Galatians, uh, even Colossians, you have kind of Paul attempting to forge these connections at the outside of the epistle. So mm. Paul begins with a salutation, and that salutation is very personalized. Now, we're just talking about this very general theme that the epistle seems to have. Mm -hmm. And so I find it really interesting that in verse 1 of the epistle to the, to the church at Ephesus, Paul says, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Mm. 
there's no individual mention of who these people are. Um, and so I think one of the things that that this letter does so well is it, it starts giving us maybe at least a blueprint for an ecclesiology, yeah. for a, a, a conversation on what the doctrine of the church is supposed to be. Whereas maybe in Corinthians or Galatians or Colossians, Paul taught, thinks about the church in very local terms, mm -hmm. the church meaning a congregation comprised of people. Ephesians seems to evolve from that. Mm. Um, and Ephesians seems to start casting the idea of the church, not as individual congregations facing these very local uh, threats, but rather it's this kind of sisterhood of churches that are facing the same situations and the same issues and the same problems uh, throughout time. And so I do think uh, that, as, as was pointed out in the lesson, uh, giving it perhaps a authorship date of 62 AD, uh, while Paul is imprisoned already in Rome, perhaps Ephesians represents kind of this evolution in Paul's understanding of what the church is, not as local congregations, but as a universal movement. Wow, that's 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 interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way before. This is definitely, I mean, uh, yeah, like you said, 62 AD, that would be later on in his ministry. So um, there could be a maturing of his view of what as he's, you know, as he has gone on these various missionary journeys, mm -hmm. you know, Ephesus, he spent con considerable time during his third um, missionary journey there. Um, so th this is a latter, latter, um, latter, later letter that he's sending out, and so perhaps he's starting to see that that there needs to be a unity among the sisterhood mm -hmm. of churches rather than individual congregations working for their own purposes in their own areas that he sees Christ or God moving through all of these churches in their disparate areas in the same way. That's, that's a fascinating thought. Yeah. And it's interesting then if that's, and that's just a hypothesis um, that struck me as we were kind of reading and, and noting some of the differences between this letter and other, other letters in the new Testament. It, it would seem fascinating then that the decision is to write uh, and, and to write in the Church of Ephesus now, uh, cards on the table. There is uh, a, a hypothesis out there uh, that uh, scholars have put forth that Ephesians was actually uh, the first copies that you have of the manuscripts around 200 AD. There is no title. So it just says to the church at blank. And then you have uh, the rest of the text. And the idea that mm. some scholarship has is that this particular work was intended to pass to be passed through uh, the many churches in Asia and Asia Minor. And every church then was invited to write the name of their congregation. So if you're if uh, this letter would have gone to Ephesus, then uh, the Ephesian church would have said to the church at fill in the blank Ephesus. And so what I what I find fascinating is that the the manuscript that we have, um, later manuscripts, uh, I should say that we have that actually do have the title uh, to the church at Ephesus, um, are written in a, from a city in a vantage point where uh, Ephesus is one of the largest cities in Asia Minor. It's a city renowned as uh, Dr. McVeigh thinks so poignantly stated, 
to the worship of Diana or Artemis. Uh, but not only that, it's a it's a beautiful city. Uh, it's a beautiful city in Turkey. Uh, ruins are still there. We we got a chance to go to Ephesus uh, last year. And what really, really is astonishing is at some point or another, at least if you make the connection with the book of Acts, Paul would have st stood in the Colosseum, mm -hmm. which fits around 25,000, 30,000 people. It's just wow. a magnificent, magnificent structure that is still there um, and would have kind of made his appeal for the, you know, for the, this idea of the cosmic Christ, the Christ that brings all things under his uh, purview, under his power. And in, in, in a world that was dominated by, particularly in Ephesus, this idea of Artemis, that would have been, that would have been shocking and disconcerting to say the least. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I haven't had the privilege of going to Ephesus before, but it, for you having gone there, um, you, I'm assuming you got to go to the Colosseum and to stand there. Um, what was that like for, for those of us who haven't been able to get there? Like, what was that experience like to stand there and realize that Paul had been right in that spot, yeah. making these arguments about God, trying to convince this very pagan city um, about Christ, uh, that he is a God that is not made by hands and all of those things. What, what was that experience like? Well, um, it was hot. First <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it's hot. Um, and there's very little shade. I'll tell you that much, yeah. but we actually, we actually decided to, uh, to have a worship thought, um, in, at, in the Coliseum, uh, Dr. John Pauline, talked a little bit about uh, not Ephesians itself, but uh, the seven churches uh, in Asia Minor that uh, the Revelator writes to. Mm. And what, what really struck me is how exposed everything is. Mm. Um, we were not a particularly large group. We were about, a, about 60 of us that actually bra braved the heat on that particular day. And as John and I kind of had this conversation, we started noticing how people around us started kind of turning and listening or paying attention because the vo your voice is really, really carrying mm. in, in that area. And so even within a, a, uh, an archaeological site that was by no means full or overflowing, it was a particularly hot day, I remember just feeling really exposed mm. and vulnerable. Um, and so... The thought then uh, that I had as I was talking a little bit about church history that day was how insurmountable it must have seemed hmm. for Paul to walk into a city, uh, if you're thinking uh, 62 AD, while there's these, these conversations about rebellion in Judea, and... Uh, Paul walking in as this outsider, the member of a cult that is seen with, with quite a bit of derision by, by Rome, mm. and walk into the heart of this place and then just speaking and having his having the words, uh, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which mm. he proposed, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect 
when the times reach their fulfillment, mm. to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Mm. And you can just imagine those words, right, carrying out as, as Paul preaches or even as this letter is, is written throughout that city. And how, how big the odds, how stacked the odds were against, against the, the Christian movement. And yet, hmm. uh, Paul writes this, this Paul, Paul dares to dream of, of ecclesiology, of a church that is united hmm. in, the midst, in, in the midst of these unsurmountable odds. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that, that word that you used to describe the experience of standing there in a coliseum that's... Um, an amphitheater that's supposed to hold 25,000 people in a city that hold that you have a what 250,000 I mean those are just staggering numbers especially in the ancient world right nowadays we do have cities that are larger but in in that time those were those were humongous numbers and to stand there as a relatively unknown individual of representing a relatively unknown faith, right, in a man that was from the backwaters of the Roman Empire, and and to, to preach with such conviction, wow! Paul had a lot of courage to stand there and yeah. and to and to command that presence, and his voice carried, like you were saying, it was designed so that his voice would mm -hmm. carry and eventually other people would hear to the point where that it became so threatening that, you know, during his third missionary journey, that there was a riot, right? That not, not for Paul, but against some of his, um, his traveling companions and yeah, that had to be dispersed by the authorities. Mm -hmm. Like that, that's the impact that they made, but, and yet it must've felt so overwhelming. Mm. And now though you, you, you walk over there and that, that, amphitheater is in ruins. in ruins that beautiful temple to artemis to diana is in ruins and um i'm told there's only a single pillar left there's, there's one column that's complete they're doing the turkish government is doing some amazing restoration efforts yeah so there you can but you can tell what yeah what is being restored and what is original and you're you are correct there's one original pillar still standing the best the rest is in restoration wow and 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 yet the movement of Christ mm. continues to mm. march on. Mm. It's it's just just astounding that Paul had that kind of faith, and that's what he's trying to mm -hmm. inspire these persecuted Christians while he's writing from prison. Mm -hmm. And it must have felt like the odds were completely against them, and yet he still is able to see with with that vision of the future of what is possible if we stay faithful mm -hmm. to the work of Christ. You mentioned that riot, right? And just the juxtaposition of these two, these two claims. Um, so during the riot, the riot is kind of inflamed. Uh, those of you who read the lesson will, will have noticed uh, by the chant, great is Artemis, mm -hmm. great is Artemis. And you can just... If it's in that Colosseum and you have twenty five thousand people yelling, that would have that would have made the earth tremble yes. with this greatest Artemis uh, chant. And on the other hand, you have you have this infirm man from prison writing uh, a letter that should uh, be heard, uh, a letter full of doxology, a letter full of uh, praise to who Christ is. 
in a letter that was meant to counteract that chant of greatest art, great is Artemis with his uh, bold assertion that all things are brought into unity under Christ. Mm. And what I what I really love about what you were saying, just kind of fast forwarding uh, the story, is now predominantly uh, Turkey uh, is a is is a beautiful country with beautiful people. Um, it's it's I think one of the few countries in the world where you have kind of this seamless. Uh, unity and and it seems to to be working out between uh, Muslims who are the majority of the people in in the country and then uh, Christians who who are still there, but in this country, mm. that site Ephesus, a beautiful site full of uh, archaeological wealth, is visited primarily by Christians. It's not anybody, or it's very few. I shouldn't say anybody, but very few people are going uh, to the uh, archaeological site in Ephesus to to dig out uh, and to find out about Artemis. Mm. The vast majority of people are going there because in one at one point, uh, Paul stood boldly mm. and said, all things on heaven and earth are united under Christ. Yeah. And I can't imagine there are very many, if any, adherents of um of Artemis and Diana still, and yet that was the majority religion mm -hmm. there in the city. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Just incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible because I think the one difference, and we've we've talked about this before. I just kept coming over this as I as I read the passage. The one primary difference between Artemis and and this this Jesus, who is the cosmic creator, the cosmic Christ is this idea of chosenness. Mm -hmm. um, in Roman religion, in most pagan religion, uh, gods were creatures that were motivated by their own desires. Mm -hmm. And their interactions uh, with, with their creation were designed to bring them uh, some benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul writes after he has claimed the supremacy of Christ at the outset of the letter, he'll say, in him, meaning Jesus, all were chosen. Mm. We were all chosen. And then this word, right, that, that appears in the NIV, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out mm. everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Yeah. So it's not just that all things are brought into unity uh, under Christ, it is that you and I are chosen under Christ because you and I were predestined for something. Mm. And so it's not like the world itself is kind of running out of control. And I, I, can, assume, I can just think, and I believe, Joey, in, draw, in Paul's time, it, might, it must have seemed like the world was in the hands of these powers and principalities of darkness. But yet Paul has this assurance that even in spite of all the evidence, the world itself has been predestined mm. to function according to the will of Christ. Wow. Wow. I, I love how you bring that that up, this, this contrast between how Paul is describing this faith of following Christ versus what religion meant to most people during that time, that it was a manipulation of the gods to try to get what we need. And yet Paul comes from a very different point, 
God freely gives these blessings to them, but really the whole point of following Christ is to be a part of God's plan for the world, that he, we, he even chose us even before the foundations of this world to, to be a part of his plan and to, to play that role. That's, that's very, very powerful. Um, and um, I think as Christians, I sometimes, as a Christian and having grown up in this faith, I just take for granted that that is a view, that's the view of God that I have, a benevolent God, a God who, who doesn't have to be, you don't have to plead or manipulate or try to convince him to give you good things. He freely gives you the good things even before we ask. Um, and, 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 and yet that's not the end in itself. Mm -hmm. That's not the end of the religion itself is to just be blessed, but also to be a blessing to others. And the fact that you're able to make these claims in the face of, as you were mentioning, really, really tenuous circumstances, um, we, I think rightly so in the, uh, in some Protestant traditions, we are very, very leery about this idea of predestination, right? Um, and we are very leery about the interaction between divine providence or the will of God and how that is at play with human freedom uh, and, and how that delicate dance is, uh, is meted out in the reality of our everyday life. Hmm. But I, I feel uh, a, a great deal of trepidation to make an assertion as bold as as what Paul does here at, mm. at the outset of his letter, and and I, I do so out of uh, not only my own experience but I think a sense of pastoral responsibility. Right, mm. I would be very hesitant to say, uh, "In Him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything, and everything truly means everything." Mm in conformity with his purpose or with his purpose, with the purpose of his will. Mm -hmm. It takes very little to shake my capacity to make a pronouncement as bold as that. And mm -hmm. yet I find it fascinating that Paul doesn't come at, doesn't write these words in a Pollyannish sense of religious ecstasy. He does so facing very tenuous circumstances. Yeah. And I'm just I'm just wondering how incredible it, it, it must have been to actually pen these words mm -hmm. when every single thing around you seems to indicate otherwise. It mm -hmm. seems to indicate that yes, things don't really happen in accordance with God's will. Um, things happen in accordance with the will of the prince of this world. And yet Paul makes this bold assertion, everything happens for the purpose of his will. Yeah, that's a great point because it'd be, it'd be a completely different message if Paul is writing this from some mansion somewhere overlooking, you know, the Mediterranean Sea <laughs> and <laughs> in the lap of luxury, you know, and he's penning these words, but he's writing from prison mm -hmm. to people he knows are being persecuted and yet he's able to write these words. But what we see in the book of Acts is that Paul does have this, almost unbelievable rock solid conviction that things are going to work according to God's plan. It may not work to my benefit all the time. 
I may get sick, I may get injured, I may be hurt, I may be imprisoned, but in the end, God's will is going to be accomplished. And to the point where he's writing from prison that God is using these chains to further his gospel, right? He really believes that that he him being in prison in Rome was a part of God's plans and good things will come out of this, which is a hard thing. I mean, if I were Paul, that would be a hard thing for me to write. And yet Paul does seem to have that that type of rock solid conviction, which you know, we've we've had studies where we've talked about suffering and it, and and at times we've talked about that statement, you know, the suffering is that a part of the will of God. And we've made the statement that that it's suffering is not a part of God's original plan, but God can use suffering mm-hmm. to good. I'm not sure if Paul would use those words or not, or whether he would say that suffering is a part of God's plan. That's 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 the part of me that struggles a little bit yeah. with his conviction, and yet he 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 does seem, and it, it does play out in his life that God does use those things and does bring amazing things out of them despite the challenges he faces. I think I think it's important, and I uh, to be honest, I struggled with this a lot. Um, I think it's important to remember the context in which this letter was to be consumed. Mm. This wasn't to be read um, as part of my daily devotional at home with my kids. Mm. This was to be read uh, as, and we, we, I, I say it again and again, and uh, the lesson hints at this, that the, the letter has a liturgical quality. So there is a lot. So it's meant to be consumed in a worship setting, in a church setting. And I think that's the purpose of church. Mm. The purpose of church is to be boundless in its optimism in spite of mm. every other evidence that we have to the contrary. It, it, Paul doesn't write this to somebody uh, who is uh, at, at a grave site saying, hey, this is the will of God that somebody died. Mm. Actually, Paul is very clear uh, that Jesus came in order to reverse yeah. uh, the problems of, of death. He, he writes that to the, to the church at Thessalonica. But in this context, in the context of church, it really, it really makes us ask a question about the purpose of church. And I think Paul is saying the purpose of church is to be boundlessly optimistic mm. In, light, in spite of everything else that is going out there. Um, and it reminds me of a story that uh, I hope he's okay with this. Our, our senior pastor uh, told me once, says that he was uh, riding on, on a plane with uh, one of his kiddos, very young, and you and I have, have children, and we know how nerve-wracking it is to, to fly with, uh, with kids when they're very young. And so um, there was somebody that uh, climbed into the airplane and apparently had never had kids or knew any kids. And so they did this. This is how you know that you don't know kids or you don't have kids. She just went, oh. And, um, and it was almost like this, this energy that was emanating from mm. this person caused uh, the baby to start crying mm. and crying and crying and crying and crying. And Randy says that he got up and did anything he could to, to quiet the baby down. And nothing was working. And that I, I felt that level of, of anxiety. Mm. And then he felt uh, someone's hand in the back. 
as a mother who had experience flying with children, pat him on his shoulder and say, it's going to be okay. Mm. Whether the baby had continued crying or not is immaterial. Mm. The action of, of tapping somebody in the soul, in the sho- on the shoulder in spite of evidence to the contrary and say everything is going to be okay is the purpose of church. That's why mm. we worship. Because it's our capacity to say, hey, we know it's hard. We know we're suffering. But in the end, everything is going to be okay. Amen. That's so beautiful. So with that in mind, Joey, you you had this, this idea that I thought is brilliant. And that is we've, we've talked about the original context and how this particular epistle was meant to be consumed. It was meant to be read aloud and to be heard aloud. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to go through uh, the six chapters of the epistle in this last bit of our, our time together. And our hope is that you just close your eyes and you just hear the words anew and hear them as a prayer as we finish uh, with chapter six. Uh, we'll, we'll take that as a prayer and then we'll see you next week. May God bless you. Joey, would, would you like to start? Sure. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you are in my remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelations so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, 
power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As for you, you were dead, dead in your transgressions and sins in which you you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by his grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us up with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this, well, this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. For we, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, 
Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the spirit, the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth with the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they, they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something that is useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for the Lord's people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord.'" 
Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ shall shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, people have never hated their own bodies, but they feed and care for them just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers 
of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me, what that whenever I speak, Words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending you him for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Amen. Amen.